0: Today's guest is Dr. Amy Rothenberg, who has practiced as a licensed naturopathic physician since 1986 in Northampton, Massachusetts. She is also the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians' 2017 Physician of the Year. She was the longtime medical editor for the Institute of Natural Medicine, and she, along with her husband, Dr. Paul Herskew, have taught through the New England School of Homeopathy since 1988. When she was diagnosed with cancer in 2014, Dr. Rothenberg sought care at a renowned teaching hospital and worked with providers with expertise in integrative natural medicine oncology to create her medical dream team. She recently released her book called You Finished Treatment, Now What?, a Field Guide for Cancer Survivors. This book is a roadmap for lifestyle and natural medicine to address health challenges that persist after care and to reduce the risk of recurrence. In his spare time, Dr. Rothenberg enjoys the good life in the countryside where she lives. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout, where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now my mum and your host, Eugenie Kruger. Hello, homies, and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangouts. Today, we get to speak with a very well-known and much-loved Dr. Amy Rothenberg. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to have you on. I have been stalking you on Facebook, Instagram, and I love all the beautiful information that you put out there. You're very busy promoting homeopathy and natural health. And also you and your husband, Paul Herskew, are very good ballroom dancers. <laughs> oh,
1: yes, we are. Oh, you have look back a ways. We haven't posted any dances for quite a while. Yeah. Got to the other guys, gotta get something out there. People need their hit of ballroom. <laughs>
0: they do. My grandmother was an amazing ballroom dancer and, you know, well into her 80s and I remember as a little girl looking through her cupboard with all her ballroom dresses and they were just so beautiful and you know that song I'm too sexy for my shirt she once did a ballroom dance on that and she was like in her 80s so this beautiful ballroom dress but dancing on I'm too sexy for my shirt it was gorgeous and we've got a video of it it's my favorite but anyway we can talk about dancing all day can you tell (laughs) us Amy you and Paul have been doing this since the 80s how were you first introduced to homeopathy
1: well, let's see. We have slightly different stories. I'll let Paul tell his own when he yeah. he'll be on at some point. But I was introduced to homeopathy at naturopathic medical school. I went to college, and in, in America, you go to sort of undergraduate college, university, and you study your prerequisites for medical school. And then I attended the naturopathic medical school in Portland, Oregon, and. I learned about homeopathy the first day I was there and I like what it was. And I just remember thinking, wow, that doesn't really make any sense at all. But over some years and seeing what was happening in the clinic and learning from some amazing teachers, including Paul, although he was a classmate, he had been studying homeopathy for many years before he ever got to naturopathic school and probably knew more than most of the teachers that were teaching homeopathy at the time. So that's really how I was introduced to homeopathy. And then I think, of course, it was really reinforced in my clinical practice and seeing homeopathic remedies, helping people with acute problems and chronic problems and issues on the psycho-emotional realm. And that was further reinforced by being a mother. Paul and I are blessed with three amazing now adult children. And I don't know how any family really gets through raising a family without homeopathy for all the bumps and bruises and the things that happen to kids in terms of the psycho emotional areas and acute illnesses and things like that. Thankfully, we never had anybody very sick with anything. But I think being, bringing in the natural medicine the perspective on a healthy diet, time outside in nature, family time, community, and connection along with homeopathy was just a beautiful way to raise a family. And I think that that homeopathy has a huge role to play in that vein.
0: Mm, Amazing. And then you've got your school as well, the New England School of Homeopathy. And we've actually had several guests on the show who have said that they've studied with you and everyone has raved about your teaching. I love hearing that yeah Uh, we started in
1: 1990 and uh we've trained really thousands of homeopaths around the world and this coming february we are starting our very first fully online fully asynchronous class where people can study at their own time at their own pace and then we get together for office hours where people can connect and communicate build community and i'll ask their questions and whatnot And it's just been a real learning edge for us in terms of going fully remote. COVID I think really pushed us along and we thankfully had a wonderful class in Portland, Oregon with a couple hundred students professionally videotaped just right before the pandemic, a 12 weekend class. So the quality of the material is quite good. And then we come on and do updates and augment that material. And this year, for the very first time, we have started offering it. It it drops the first of each month, a 12-hour, more introductory course. It's not a first aid class, but more about the philosophy and the practice and the promise of homeopathy for people who are interested, for a lot of folks who are taking it are patients of students of ours or patients of physicians in the area, and they want them to understand more about homeopathy so they can really get a grasp on what is this different approach to health and healing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then of course, some people take that and it dovetails right into the two-year course. So we've been very blessed to have amazing students who we are so proud of them and the work that they're doing in the world with their own practices and teaching and writing and every student that we've ever had, we hope surpasses us and helps as many people as possible and plants the seeds of homeopathy around the world.
0: Well, you've actually answered my question because I was going to ask you how long the online course is if you want to. So you can actually start from beginner and then in two years be a qualified homeopath?
1: Well, in America, though, a little bit different than in around other places around the country, mm-hmm. there is not a federally or state-by-state recognized degree in homeopathy. Mm. There are a few states where if you wanna do homeopathy and you're a medical doctor, you have to have extra training. Naturopathic doctors who are licensed now in about half of all the states, plus Puerto Rico and the US Virgin Islands, V- naturopathic doctors have homeopathy as part of their formulary. So mm-hmm. naturopathic doctors are legal to practice homeopathy. Many people go for a credential, which is called the CCH. You've probably seen that initials after people's names. The CCH is a credential where people have to have a certain number of hours of study and they have to pass passed exams and they hand in cases, et cetera. But that degree is not yet recognized by the state government. In America, medical licenses are done state by state. And in fact, Paul and I were very instrumental, spearheaded the effort to license naturopathic doctors in the state of Massachusetts, where we live. That's where Boston is. We live about two hours west of Boston, out in the hills in a little college town there uh, called Amherst. And so people who take the two year course, they are very well prepared for many of the aspects of sitting for that CCH certification. And it's an ever moving process, I would say. And I think this is true around the world, how do we credential people? How are we sure people are well enough trained? How do we prevent people from harming others? It's a big concern and we hope to be launching people into their homeopathic careers. Mm.
0: Now, you have been a very busy lady and your most recent book is You Finished Treatment, Now What? <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to write this book and what it's about? And
1: yeah, yeah. You bet. And the, the subtitle is You Finish Treatment Now What? A field guide for cancer survivors. And I can show you what it looks like right here. Uh, it's got a beautiful cover, it's mm. soft. I don't know what the material is they're using these days. Very soft, <laughs> lovely to hold, to lovely to behold and lovely to hold. It's you finished treatment now what a field guide for cancer survivors is the subtitle. And I am a cancer survivor in 2014. I went through conventional treatment for breast, and then ovarian cancer. I turned out to carry a genetic mutation after having tested negative for it before my genes did not change, but the test got more sensitive. Um, So really my timing was just kind of off, but I went through really everything that conventional medicine offered surgery, chemotherapy, radiation. I had immunotherapy. And at the same time I used a variety of natural medicines, including homeopathy, to help enhance efficacy of conventional care prevent side effects address side effects that arose and then afterward kind of to pivot into what I like to call mop up from the impact of conventional cancer care so I was in excellent hands in a research facility one of the best ones in the world mass general hospital but I immediately also created what I like to call my medical dream team that included people who had other skill sets who could help do things so that any cancer cells that might be around would be more chemo sensitive. What can we do to protect the underlying organs when you're going through radiation? Things like that. And I have to say that for a lot of people, they don't have that good fortune to have one foot in each world. And the, the impact of conventional cancer care, besides being traumatic and time consuming and expensive, and Sort of world changing for many people, it leaves people with many long term side effects. And I understood very early on that I had the right skill set to share, to help people address the symptoms that persisted long after cancer care ended, and mm-hmm. also to shift their health outcomes that there's a lot of research. It's not some naturopathic doctor making it up a lot of research on certain lifestyle and natural medicine approaches that actually help to prevent recurrence. And I believe that in the future, the promise is that we'll go to the conventional oncologist. We'll do what we need to do there at our first visit. And then immediately, you know, go out for lunch, a cup of tea, go over to the naturopathic doctor or the integrated doctor or the integrative oncologist and get the rest of the download in terms of things you can do to help prevent side effects and address those that arise. So I started writing on the platform medium, which is a lovely place people can write. And I did a 10 part series on you finish treatment. Now what, and I included 10 of the most important things. And I got a lot of feedback from that series and people are, you gotta, you gotta make this into a book. This is like, you gotta, can you expand on that? I want to tell me more. And I sort of had done the 10 part series and put it down for about a year and then COVID hit. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have a little more time on my hands. So (laughs) I actually started writing the book with a colleague, Tina Kazor, who's another naturopathic doctor in Oregon, who's really brilliant and really leading the effort in terms of naturopathic oncology in this country. And we met for a few times. I had my basic outline of those 10 chapters. I edited eight more And we started thinking about the best voice to tell it in. And we met a few times. And then she said, you know what? You don't need me. Mm -hmm. You don't need me. This is your book. It needs to be you, your voice. You use me as you need me in terms of some of the research. And there's 300 plus references in this book. Anything I recommend or anything I say, I tack it down to the research. So that's how the book was born. And I did not want to self-publish the book. So I got an agent who sold the book to a wonderful publisher. And it's really been a wonderful uh, journey. I've met incredible people. I've done a whole bunch of podcasts. If anybody's interested <laughs> in other ones from different angles and perspectives, you yeah. can look at my yeah. author website. I put them all up on the blog there and I've done a lot of them. and It's been super fun. My hope, my prayer is that this information gets to the ears of somebody who needs it. Mm. And is that person or the person they love is helped by some very important information that we can get into some of it if you want, or people can find it in the book.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to ask if you can maybe just touch on 10 of the most important things just for our listeners. It's always nice to, you know, just give, give them something to walk away with at the end of the episode, you something bet. that they can go in action straight away.
1: You bet. And I will say that there is a whole chapter in the book on whole person medicines, like homeopathy, acupuncture, and Ayurveda, although I am a dyed in the wool homeopath. I, am, I do that in the context of naturopathic medicine, which is has a much broader uh, footprint. And as we know, of course, the organon of medicine, it's not the organon of homeopathy. There are many things that Hahnemann brings in related to fresh air and good food and exercise. So we have a mandate in terms of our own homeopathic profession to not only give a remedy. And if you're not knowledgeable or experienced in the other pieces, that's fine. But just be sure you have colleagues that you can refer to who can help people in those areas. The main areas that I touch upon in the book, the whole first part of the book is how to change your internal environment to be less hospitable to cancer. But before I get to that, I spend a chapter, it's called how to talk. So your oncologist listens and listen. So your oncologist talks. I'm very interested in the idea of self-empowerment and self-agency. And a lot of people, when they get a cancer diagnosis, they go like deer in the headlights and they just don't even know where to look or where to go. Mm -hmm. And so I give very concrete examples of ways you can improve the dynamic and the relationship and the interaction that you have with your conventional caregivers so that you can get the most and the best out of those situations with the least amount of stress. So things like bringing somebody with you, taking good notes, writing down the questions you have and saying ahead of time, I have questions I wanna be sure that we save some time for. Meeting your doctors with yourself being fully dressed instead of in a gown so that they see you first as a person, not as a patient. And I have a, a this kind of a listicle of things that people can do to help empower themselves. And then the chapters basically go on a little bit of a tour around the different parts of the body and things we can do to change the internal environment to be less hospitable to cancer. So I start out with exercise, probably the number one thing people can and should do. I talk about food and nutrition, both what you should eat and when you should eat. Uh, I talk about the use of botanical medicine, herbs the use of nutritional supplements as appropriate, the very central and important role of sleep in terms of healing and getting and staying healthy, and the role of the head game and its importance in the way that we function in the world and how we deal with these big diagnoses. Mm. And I have a whole chapter on caregivers, because many people who are cancer survivors are also caregivers and caregivers are their own kind of survivor. I have a whole chapter on that. And then I basically go into the typical common things that people have post-conventional cancer care. So we start out with fatigue, brain Mm -hmm. fog, lymphedema, peripheral neuropathy, dissatisfaction with intimacy and sex, and the list goes on. And then I present the natural medicine approaches that have shown evidence of working for each of those kinds of complaints. And I laid out, it's very public facing. I don't dumb it down, but it's also not filled with a lot of medical jargon. So I think people can read it. And I've had people from, I actually had my own oncology visits this week. Every six months I go just kind of to say hi and check in. And I walked in and my doctor said, I love the book. It's fantastic. It's perfect. (laughs) I was so inspired. Um, Yeah, I actually sent the book to 30 people, an advanced review copy. My publisher wanted me to do that because they wanted me to get advanced praise. And I thought maybe half of them would do it. Every single person wrote advanced praise, except for one, another naturopathic doctor, who I think it was a conflict of interest for her. She has Uh her own book coming out. But other than that, every medical doctor, osteopathic doctor, chiropractor, naturopathic doctor, cancer survivor, wrote amazing advanced praise, Mm. which you can read on amazon.com if you want, (laughs) but, and it's also in the front of the book. Anyway, it hits a chord for a lot of people. And this is an area where there's not a lot of information available to people. The internet is awash with information. Some of that information is quite good. Some of it is really bad. A lot of it's super expensive. And it's a little bit like if you don't know what you don't know, you can be totally bamboozled and worse. So I always say to people, read the book, but also find yourself somebody who does integrative oncology. Many of us now work by telemedicine, have patients all over the world. So I think it's really, this is the future it's coming. And mostly it's driven by patient demand. It's really driven by patient demand. And also I think it's driven by young, sadly, younger and younger people getting cancer who are more empowered and who are more connected into the, what's going on in the world. And they want answers They're not going to be the passive older person who just like, doesn't want to rock the boat.
0: Well, it is definitely a hot topic. And we have published 130 episodes now. I've already recorded about 145, but of all the episodes, a recent one that we had on cancer overtook all of the most recent episodes. And I've never seen an episode statistics climb that fast. I was like, wow, it really shows. And the
1: homeopathy angle, I mean, it's just so interesting to me and I'm just going to I'll just talk a little bit about it because this is, I know there's a lot of people that are really into homeopathy. One of the most important ways that I use homeopathy with my cancer survivors is I'm a a single remedy, one remedy at a time. I don't use combination remedies, constitutional prescriber. And I do treat people for acute issues as they arise, of course, but I'm more interested in the, the whole person. And when I understand the constitutional remedy of a person, what makes them tick and how they move through the world and the way that they organize their life, which is all part of constitutional prescribing, as we know, then that is going to inform the kind of plan that I make for them related to everything else. Oh, that's so even cool. when I'm working with naturopathic doctors who don't use homeopathy, because not all do, I said, just learn the top 50 constitutional remedies, a little bit, broad strokes. It'll help you make better plans for people. Because I could come up with a plan 10 pages long about this exercise, this food, these supplements, that acupuncture, but if the person doesn't have the right temperament, the resources, the support people, the self-agency, you know, they're not going to do it. So understanding, and this is true, not just for cancer survivors. This is true, whatever, whoever you're treating, if you're using any other kinds of natural medicine, understanding somebody's constitutional state should inform the kind of plans that you make for those people. And for me, for cancer survivors, the main areas that I, they're coming in for help with are mopping up from conventional care, like I just talked about really addressing acute illnesses that are first aid things that come up, like they come up for everybody Mm. treating the more psycho-emotional symptoms. I mean, getting a cancer diagnosis is a real blow for a lot of people. And no matter how kind the doctors are, it's a lot to go through. And many of us have to process some of the anxiety, the depression, the irritability, the fear of cancer coming back. There's a lot there to unpack. And then when I talked about that sort of brain fog, fatigue, insomnia, like that whole area where conventional medicine does not have good answers. They just don't have good answers. They use certain drugs. They're not that helpful. They have side effects. And also, and then fifthly, it would be addressing other underlying chronic illnesses. And I just have to put in a word here for the concept of deep prescribing, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in America, you know, a lot of people take drugs and they don't just take one. They have one for depression. They take one for gastroesophageal reflux. They take a sleeping aid. They're on blood pressure medicine and something to keep the cholesterol down. The Aussies
0: like to follow America. So, yeah, (laughs) not far behind you. (laughs) Really chart your own path over there. folks. (laughs) Yeah, no, Um, they're not good. Yeah.
1: It's crazy, crazy. And every time you add another drug, this concept of polypharmacy, Mm -hmm. we also have the concept of the prescribing cascade where you take one drug for something and you get side effects from that drug and you take another drug to treat the side effects. Every time you add another drug to the pile, you have 200 of the most commonly prescribed drugs in America now have one side effect of cognitive decline. Okay, so you just do the math And you think about all the people that have different kinds of cognitive decline all the Mm -hmm. way to Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. and different kinds of dementias. I think we're causing that by our love affair with pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. So if I can use homeopathy to address a complaint for which a drug is prescribed, I will reach out to the prescribing physician and we'll try to work on a deep prescribing approach. So many doctors are trained very well in pharmacy and pharmaceuticals not so well in de-prescribing. We de-prescribe while at the same time encouraging the person with lifestyle medicine and natural medicines, including homeopathy, so that we can get people either on a reduced dose of medication because most side effects, almost all side effects are dose dependent. If you can get somebody down on much less of something, that's really worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Those of you listening who are taking a lot of drugs, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying there might be a better way and Mm. we can look at all the drugs and we can think which is one that maybe we can start to think about lowering Mm. because we're increasing our exercise or we're improving our diet or we Mm. brought in mindfulness meditation or we're taking these supplements that we know also act at that exact place. Mm. And I would say I have been blessed. I've just had a lot of energy my whole life. So I have written extensively on many Common ailments. You can type in my name like Amy Rothenberg insomnia, Amy Rothenberg hypertension, Amy Rothenberg anxiety in children. And I have written a lot about the other natural medicine approaches besides homeopathy because you know, oh, homeopathy, there's no specific remedy for that complaint. There's a specific remedy for that individual with that complaint. But if I'm going to talk about homeopathy. I'm going to talk about how we prescribe in a general way. And that's not going to be specific for the particular diagnosis. Everybody knows that. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I need to unpack a few things of what you've just said because that was like a powerhouse of information. (laughs) The first thing is, I love that in the book, you talk about empowering the patient. I also don't even like, like I never use the word patient in my clinic. I always say client because they're choosing to work with me. And I always feel like the word patient feels like, you know, somebody else knows all the information and you're the one that doesn't. So I have a love-hate relationship with that word, but that you are empowering them when they're going to the oncologist to ask the right questions. And that is exactly where I come from, but with a different spin. So with mothers, when they're going to the doctor and their child has an ear infection, making sure you're asking the right questions, That doctor has that information there and they're probably just so used to nobody asking questions and that's why they don't put it out there. But sometimes if you actually take the time to pick their brain, they will actually give you that information and help Mm -hmm. you be more empowered and they'll have more respect for you. And it's uh, more of a teamwork relationship then rather than the know-all. And also another place where I feel it's really empowering is uh, mothers who are pregnant and then when they speak to their midwife or their OBGYN, that they're asking lots of questions now, always like use these people. They've studied for many, many years. They've got lots of information. I'm sure they would love to share it with you and uh, making you feel more empowered because I have got quite a few clients who have had cancer in the past. And one of the big regrets that they always say is that they just went along with everything and they didn't ask enough questions. And that's a big thing. So I love that you have that in the book. And I'm not surprised that your book is so holistically minded because you are a holistic practitioner that you've got the diet in there. You've got the sleep, you've got the exercise and the questions. And I love that it's got all those different aspects in there. And I love, love, love what you say about Knowing the client's constitutional remedy and prescribing for them according to that. Because if you are a NatMur constitution, you're not the type of person that's going to wear your heart on your sleeve and find it easy necessarily to ask lots of questions to the oncologist or reveal lots of information about yourself so I love that if you know the person is that you can give them like extra little nudges or extra little ways of doing things and maybe telling them to do things via email instead of in person or 100 percent, yeah that's wonderful I love that so maybe do you want to tell us any more about how homeopathy fits into all of this I mean love the natural medicine side of it as well it's so important but I know our listeners are going to ask questions about the homeopathy side of it is there anything else that you can share with us about that
1: yeah I think that the homeopathy side of it for me is people know that that's in my toolkit. Mm -hmm. So when they come to see me, they often expect to get a homeopathic remedy, regardless of what else we're doing. So when I'm taking the case of a cancer survivor, I am taking a full homeopathic intake, just like I would with a new patient. And I'm going to try to focus on what it is that's most limiting to that patient at that moment in time. And I'm going to try to understand that in the context of the rest of their overall health. So I'm going to do, I'm going to a lot of times people come in with a specific complaint. Let's see, they are coming in with a problem like peripheral neuropathy and they had chemotherapy and now they've got numbness in their fingers, numbness in their toes, and they're not able to, their gait is a little bit off because they can't quite feel the heel strike and their balance is a little bit off and they have pain. Neuropathy can also cause pain. I want to understand that pain in all of its detail, just like we do with all our intakes, what makes it better? What makes it worse? Is there anything that they can do that they know brings it on? Uh, When is it worse? And then if they can describe what it feels like actually in a lot of detail, when they have it, do they have any concomitant symptoms? When they're having that peripheral neuropathy, are they taking something? Is there, are there any maintaining causes? So some people are com- finished with treatment and they're literally done and other people continue on with other medications that they don't have to go to the clinic for all the time, but they are other cancer related medications. So are they continuously on something that is going to be a maintaining cause? I would need to mm-hmm. sort of understand that. And then I'm going to do a complete review of systems, starting at you know, any issues with balance, vertigo, headaches, any issues with your sinuses going to work, you know, look at the person, work my way down, Tell me about your digestive process. How are you in terms of urination? Any issues with your skin? How's your sleep? We just kind of go, this is second nature now. And anybody who studies with us understands that we're always going to be understanding the main complaint in the context of the whole person. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to shift over to the mental and emotional level in terms of any tendency for irritability, depression, anxiety. And if so, to describe that and explain that, what do they need when they're feeling down? What brings on anxiety, et cetera. And then every time we see a patient, we're going to review the physical general symptoms. You know, are they warm or chilly, any food cravings, sleep position, the nature of the pain, so that we understand we get the broad strokes on the whole person. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people come in and nobody has just we always laugh, when we say things like, nobody just has an earache anymore. People come in fully loaded. And they have the peripheral neuropathy, but they also really have brain fog and they're kind of depressed and they digest this sluggish digestion. And your intake form is long and meaty with all kinds of symptoms to hang a hat on in terms of finding a remedy. And I have seen homeopathy, first of all, it can directly affect the symptom that the person is coming in complaining of, but it also can, re- you know, this concept of rising tides raise all ships. It can improve the general constitution of the state of the person and person has a little more energy. They often have a little more ability to focus. They have a little more self agency. They can make some better choices in terms of the lifestyle things. So we see a person moving into a positive spiral of health Mm -hmm. instead of a negative spiral of health. Mm -hmm. And I often feel when I'm working with a cancer survivor or other people with chronic disease, that I am reaching my hand out and down and pulling them back into the land of the living, pulling them back up into some joy and some connection with others and some feelings of satisfaction and self-love, all the things that are roots to healing, I feel. And you know, there's not a lot of other medicines that can really do that. And that is the beauty and the promise of homeopathy. It's not here in this case specific for cancer survivors, but cancer survivors have been through a lot and there's a lot of them. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of cancer survivors now, partly because there's more and more cancer, which is bad, partly because treatments have gotten better. Things that used to be a death sentence, people are living and surviving from years, years, years on end. And I I would say that homeopathy, as well as the content of my book, they are also relevant for people who are living with cancer, not everybody's going to get the clean bill of health, you know, you're done, have a nice life, people Mm -hmm. are going to be living with cancer for years to come in a kind of relationship with the cancer, we can feel perfectly comfortable using homeopathy, and other natural medicine approaches with those people for the same positive kind of benefits. So People often ask me, well, can a remedy sort of stimulate cancer to grow more? You know, I just have never seen that. I don't think that's possible. So we want to give people as much support through gentle, natural, and in this case, energetic medicines like homeopathy
0: to really have them reach the best possible health outcomes. Mm. And do you speak? about prevention in the book, but I guess like everything that you're saying in the book for treatment, you can actually use as prevention as well. I mean, the the best treatment
1: for cancer is to prevent ever getting it for Mm -hmm. sure. So it's true. And some patients that I have who do develop metastatic disease, we then just start from the beginning in terms of what are we going to do to support you through treatment? I'm not a person who's going to tell somebody, you know, just use homeopathy. You don't Mm -hmm. have to bother with the rest of it. That's not me. And if a person is really older or has something quite incurable and they decide to opt out of whatever the treatment du jour is that I can understand. And of course, then the question is, well, where does that, where's that age? I'm not going to get into mm-hmm. that sort of ethical dilemma there, ethical question, but I would say that prevention, and, and this is where we know, and I will also throw in here, it's not just cancer. Cancer, diabetes, and heart disease are the three biggest killers in America. And I'm pretty sure probably in Australia that I've never Mm -hmm. looked that statistic Mm. up. In fact, breast cancer, the most common thing that women with breast cancer die from actually is heart disease. So it's important to remember that. Don't forget about your other checkups. (laughs) If you're a breast cancer survivor, please, and watch your cholesterol and and all that jazz. So what I was going to say is that about what's known now in the medical literature is about 80% of cancer, diabetes, and heart disease is lifestyle preventable. Mm. Let's say that again, about 80% of the diagnoses of cancer, heart disease, and diabetes is lifestyle preventable. So that means that 20% isn't, you know, like when you see a little kid with leukemia you know, is that really their lifestyle? Probably not. I mean, they probably had some exposures environmentally. And Mm. then that's the thing Like we have certain things that we can control a whole other section of my book that I think is really important. And it's very important for homeopaths to appreciate and underscore with their patients is that there are thousands and thousands of chemicals in the world. We are exposed to a lot of them. Some of them we can control, some of them we can't. So we should control the ones we can with our personal you know, beauty products, cleaning products, things we put on our skin, things we wash the floor with all of that, get the least toxins, no sense, just plain, plain, plain is going to be best. And then to lean into the idea that our bodies are beautifully equipped to detoxify ourselves. So we detox every day by having bowel movements, right? That's one way we get rid of the, mm-hmm. the unwanted things. And that's not detox from things in the environment as much as from the digestive process. So the normal digestive process is a big detox situation. We use the whole word, I maybe, I don't know if people use the word emunctories, but our emunctories are the kind of whatever you believe in, God-given, nature-given, we're born with them, other animals, mammals have these kind of emunctory systems as well. The biggest ones is, is elimination, like I just said. The second one is urination, staying well hydrated, and we get rid of many of them normal metabolic waste that we have, as well as detoxes from the environmental exposures. The third way we do that is through sweating and really getting a good sweat two or three times a week is awesome. Sauna, beautiful, unless you have lymphedema, it's contraindicated from lymphedema. The fourth way is through deep breathing. When we deep breathe, we are also helping detox. And I would add a fifth area to the emunctory system area, which would be taking space or removing yourself from people, organizations, events that really stress you out you don't enjoy are toxic Mm. for you. Mm. Now you have to kind of look at your life and what's making up your life and sidestep the things that are not working for you. Mm. So leaning into the among trees is a very important part of mopping up from cancer care and preventing recurrence, but also it's a very important part of preventing cancer in the first place.
0: I have to say, I haven't heard that word among trees before, but I like it. (laughs) And I have a personal question for you. Would you consider the menstrual cycle also as a way of detoxifying? Because I've often in the clinic done detoxes with my clients, and then often they will have in that first cycle quite a lot of extra clots and things coming out. And I've often wondered if that's, you know, they say women live longer than men, if maybe that's because of our menstrual cycle that we have an extra detox pathway. Just a random idea I've come up with. I
1: really agree with that.
0: Mm. Yes. Absolutely. Now, Amy, in your perfect world, How do you see conventional medicine and natural medicine and, you know, integrative medicine all working together to help cancer patients? How do you see that happening?
1: Well, I think I have a whole section of my book, sort of visions of the future. And Mm. it really is that what I said before, you go and you meet with your oncologist, and then you go over to the next office and you meet with your next provider who has this different, not, uh, it's not competitive. It's complementary to the other work. And I shall say that the conventional medical world is a very big ship and it's slowly turning toward conventional medicine. Parts of it are turning to more detailed research and understanding the genetic element of cancer and predisposition. We understand that through miasms in homeopathy, but that's an enormous area of current exploration that's going to just get better and better and better, having more personalized treatment plans from the conventional world, let alone the natural medicine world. And there is more and more research on natural medicine approaches that is showing good evidence. I mean, things like using curcumin for people that have sore joints Mm -hmm. because they're taking an estrogen suppressing medication. There's good research on that. Using something like quercetin, which is a bioflavonoid during radiation helps cancer cells be more radiosensitive. There's good or good enough research on that. I'm interested in the kind of approaches that are free and no side effects or not very expensive Mm. and no side effects, anything like that. We're interested in that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that this book, one of the goals of the book is to really, as a, as sort of an offering to my conventional medical providers, my own providers and the community of providers working with oncology patients, that patients are looking for this. They want this. In America, 75% of people in conventional cancer care are doing some kind of natural medicine. It might be homeopathic remedies as sleep aids. It might be nutritional supplements to help with nausea. It might be some kind of dietary approach related to gaining weight after chemo. So it's not like people aren't already doing some of this. We just need to get it more coordinated and we need to get it to be part of the natural evolution of what happens with patients going through cancer care. Because this title of this book literally is something that people say to me all the time. Now what? Mm -hmm. They have like 10 minutes of elation because they're so happy to be done. And then it's like the deer in headlights because, you know, the the rallying cries have ended. Nobody's bringing nice meals anymore. Mm -hmm. They don't have to go in every couple of weeks for something. And especially people who are on their own and don't have a lot of community and connection this can be very challenging. I do have a whole section in the book on community and connection and the research and how the research points to people who are connected, have better health outcomes. They live longer. It's not just a theoretical thing that would be nice if you had a partner. It's not that. And it's all kinds of community. It's not just partners or children. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I, it's it's like another conversation that I'm having with my patients, ensuring that they have somebody they can talk to when they're feeling down, somebody they can reach out to if they're not feeling well. And There's
0: a lot of people feeling isolated these days and Mm. and COVID didn't help. It did not. No, definitely not. The homeopath in me is interested in the nautical themes because he said about the medical system being a big ship and rising tides raise all ships.
1: (laughs) And I don't know if you noticed, but on the cover of my book, there's a compass.
0: Oh, uh, (laughs) I didn't put that one designer
1: designer, at the top of each new chapter. She put the true North symbol.
0: Oh, that's cool. Anybody who
1: lives in my area should just swing by. I created a clear sticker out of that true North sticker and I put it on a beautiful, organic, dark round chocolate with a gold wrapper that I gave away at my book launch party. I have leftovers Ooh. and then at the very end. When I'm talking about, there are a lot of references, as I mentioned, and there are a lot of acknowledgements and on the top page of the acknowledgements, I have a, a beautiful little uh, lighthouse. A lighthouse. Oh. I love lighthouses to me, the metaphor about lighthouses and being guided away from danger and to safety is such a beautiful metaphor for this book, the danger of cancer itself, the necessary danger of treatment, and then where is the path toward the light and toward the safety and the resilience and the healing? And that's one thing I would say any of you listening to this podcast, if you are a cancer survivor, you've been through a lot or you work is living with cancer. I always lean into the idea that we are a resilient being. Many of us are able to bounce back. They may bounce back in a slightly different direction, mm-hmm. but we can bounce back. And for those people who are going to die from cancer, first of all, I will say, we are all gonna die from something. Many mm-hmm. people who have cancer who wind up dying from something else as I alluded to before, but we have the opportunity each day to make good choices to impact our quality of life and our health outcome Oh. Mm,
0: beautiful. Well, I was going to ask if there's a final message you want to leave us with, but that was a pretty good message. <laughs> is there any other any any final thing? And and also where can people get hold of you and the work that you do?
1: You bet. You bet. Uh people can find me at my author website, which is dramyrothenberg.com. It's D-R-A-M-Y R-O-T-H-E-N-B-E-R-G. Dr. Amy Rothenberg Uh, dot com. And then you can follow me. I think you're, you will have show notes, right? And you can include, yes, it'll all be in the show notes. Yeah, that'll be there. And you're always welcome to join in. I have on my author site, I have upcoming events. A lot of them are in person, but a lot of them are virtual. I know the time difference is terrible, but I do get recordings for all of them. And I've taken up different topics with different podcasters on the different chapters of my book. I am also interested in coming to speak to other groups or book groups. I think we have a group of cancer survivors that are going, are forming a book group to just go through a couple chapters at a time. And I'm going to come in for oh. like 20 minutes at the end of their gathering. And that's going to be, that'll be a fun little project for me. It's very generous always-
0: of you. You're such a wonderful speaker. So it's wonderful that you're so generous with your time to actually go and engage. And like you say, community is very important. So You're actually taking active steps yourself to keep yourself healthy. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time, Amy. I know there's so many people that are going to resonate with this episode. And I anticipate book sales go skyrocketing.
1: (laughs) Um, And this is definitely. I can't wait to come back to Australia. Oh, I I can't. It must have been like 10, 15 years ago now. We had such a good wonderful time. We went up to Cannes. We spent a week on a liverboard at the Great Barrier Reef. Oh. But my favorite place, we went to the Outback for a week. We just meandered around. That was totally my scene. I love that. Oh, so we hope to get
0: back soon. Well, I will see what I can arrange. <laughs> wonderful. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful You're day. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.